again everybody to another episode of what's important now the podcast from the united states border patrol academy where we talk about things that are important to the men and women of the united states border patrol their families and those we serve now today we have a very special guest we have chief patrol agent aaron heike from the san diego sector now chief heike is in charge of basically the entire coastal region and the border region of the state of california give you a little rundown chief heike joined in 1998 as a member of Class 364, started off in uh, Yuma at the Welton Station and has literally been all over the country since that time. We'll talk a little bit about that as the, uh, as the conversation goes on. But first, Chief, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, you see we're, we're dressed in our dress uniforms today, which is a little unusual because you actually showed up to be the keynote speaker for Class 1152 who just graduated this morning. Yes, it's always a joy to come out and see the new trainees, the new agents coming out to the field. It's interesting to see they just keep getting younger and younger. It's a, a lot of them could be our children now. Yes, and a couple of times I have a classmate whose son EOD last year, and I remember when he was born. So It's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing how, how time flies. We had, we had one gentleman that was a CBP officer that actually has not one but two kids in the academy right now, and one of them graduated as part of Class 1152 today. And then his daughter is set to graduate in another couple of months. Must be, a, I can't imagine how proud he must feel. Right, absolutely. And uh, they're not getting younger, we're getting older. Exactly. Well, speaking of that, so you were class 364, and I always ask this of all of my guests in green. Do you remember your class chant? 364, esprit de corps, guarding the border forevermore. Sir. And 23 years <laughs> later, you still just like that, calling uh, up. Absolutely. Your classmates, you still keeping in touch with them? Yes. Uh, a lot of them have retired. But uh, we've got a few left out there, and I still uh, still talk to them. Got a couple of them in San Diego sector with me now. Wow, outstanding, outstanding. So your career, there's a couple of points that I want to focus on today to kind of give everybody some awareness on some some areas that they don't generally think about. But first, just to give you a quick rundown. So you started off in the Welton Station in Yuma sector. You promoted to a supervisory board patrol agent in 2004 at Grand Forks sector, which is up in North Dakota, as part of the Grand Marais Station. Now I know that station. It's uh, it's pretty remote but beautiful it's right there on the great lakes that's a garden spot it is a beautiful spot it's not far from where i went to college and uh, right up on the minnesota arrowhead there you go and then uh, 2005 you actually uh, were selected as the patrol agent in charge of that station which being a patrol agent in charge of a small station comes with its own set of problems because you don't have an, an abundance of staff to take care of all the things that other pics might have on the southwest border right when i arrived at graham ray station in 02 it was a two-agent station the other agent had days, I had swings. And uh, four years later, we had an influx of agents, and they, they uh, upped it to a, a PIC, one supervisor, and then I think we had about 10 agents at the time. No MSS staff, no administrative staff. So it's different up there, but it's a lot of fun. So a 12-person station compared to what you might find on the southwest border where some stations are in excess of 500 agents. Yes. So in 2007, you promote to assistant chief patrol agent at the Holton Sector. And that's over there in the state of Maine. I know it well. Came from there myself. Another garden spot. You've had some nice areas that you've had to go to in your career. 
it is unique within the Border Patrol. Having grown up in the north, I like I, I like the north just as well as the as the south and the southwest. But uh, not as many people on the Border Patrol uh, appreciate winters up north, and so it I, uh, it gave me a lot of opportunities to promote into into places where not necessarily a lot of other people wanted to go. So you were there from 2007 until 2009, and then you took a position as an associate chief at the U.S. Border Patrol headquarters in the Enforcement and Information Technology Division, and that's one of those things that I want to talk about here in a second. So after that, you departed, and in 2011, you went to Haver Sector as the deputy chief up in Montana, so another northern border sector, so you've kind of run the gambit all along the, the northern border with Canada. Then uh, you subsequently became the chief patrol agent back to the Grand Forks sector and then moved down in 2019 to the deputy chief of the San Diego sector. And here you are today as the chief patrol agent of San Diego sector. One of the things that's uh, unique about your background, and you mentioned uh, where you went to school, where you're from, you actually have a Juris Doctorate from the University of North Dakota School of Law, and you actually practiced law before you joined the Border Patrol. Yes, and one of the reasons going back as long as to when I was in high school, really, and uh, wanting to come into law enforcement, wanting to come into federal law enforcement. And as a, a, a kid, 16, 17, 18, um, big X-Files days, back in those days, everybody wanted to be in the FBI. And my dad had a friend in the FBI, and he said your best way of coming in was to get either a, a accounting degree or a law degree. I'm not good with numbers, so I didn't want to go accounting. So I went law and um, went through the process um, when I graduated from, from law school. Um, started to practice some, was already looking at law enforcement. And at the time, the only federal systems that were hiring were the Marshal Service and the Border Patrol. At the time, having grown up in central, north central Minnesota, never heard the Border Patrol before. Um, I applied to both just to get my foot in the federal door, um, said I'd go to whichever called first. Border Patrol called first, um, and I uh, actually had the paperwork for the marshals the week after I graduated from the academy with the Border Patrol, so that worked out well, um, unknowing at the time. And then after that, I did apply after the academy to the FBI. It took them a little over three years to offer me a job, and by that time, I had worked with the FBI, and I had three years in the Border Patrol. And personality-wise, the Border Patrol was made for me. Uh, it's a immediate gratification. It's field work. It's active. It's not slow-paced. And the FBI has a, a very important function. It's just not fit for my personality. And uh, I don't regret the, the choice, uh, not a bit, ever. So. so that's such a common thing that you hear. There, there's so many folks that say the same thing. They get into the Border Patrol either as a stepping stone or let's just see what it's all about, and they end up finding a home there. Not a lot of people have the similar experience where you go from up in the northern uh, border down to Yuma, Arizona. How big of a shock was that for you? It was interesting. I had been to Los Angeles once and Phoenix once. Otherwise, it's the only southwest border experience I had before I EOD'd. The day I left Minnesota, it was 26 below zero. I drove down to Yuma. Um, it did take me, I had to buy two different maps in Minnesota before I could even find Yuma on a map. I still couldn't find Welton until I actually got to Yuma, um, where somebody could point to where Welton was. Um, and then the, the temperature change uh, was significant. Uh, even I went to the academy in Charleston. And so I showed up in Charleston in February, and it was 40 degrees in the morning. And so that was, that's spring, summer weather for me. And so it was beautiful. 
And a lot of my classmates would give me a hard time because I would come with a short sleeve shirt and no jacket. And to, they're wearing coats. To and inspection. Galoshes. And yes. And if one's not wearing them, nobody can wear them. And I never brought my jacket, and they, they weren't, didn't appreciate that very much. That's not a good way to make friends in a new class. So Charleston, South Carolina, that's obviously where the United States Border Patrol Academy used to be. There was a period of time they went from Glencoe to Charleston, and subsequently in 2004 moved back over here to Artesia, New Mexico, where we are today. So that's the same spot I went through. I went through uh, Charleston as well, and I ended up in El Centro, California, and I did the same thing. I looked on a map trying to find where it was. Again, another common tale that, uh, that, that so many Border Patrol agents have is being sent to these places that they never imagined going and let alone be able to find on a Rand McNally map because they didn't have GPSs back right. then. But, but what did you think of Welton when you got there? It was small, um, which I liked. Um, it was, at the time, the PIC position in Welton, Arizona, was a, a GS-13. They had two supervisors, um, which were GS-12s at the time, and uh, no supervisor from midnight shift. Um, there was 12 agents there at the time. I think they're four or 500 now. Um, so it was a, a much different atmosphere. Uh, four of my from my class went to Welton, and it was fantastic. It was we were out in the field um, chasing and cutting sign all shift every shift, and it was uh, we were on mandatory six day weeks for at least the first year I was down there because we were so busy and we were so short on resources. But it was as fast as we could go all the time, and it was a lot of fun. And since that time, the Welton station has grown significantly. Yes, there. Um, just structure-wise, the PIC is a 15 now um, with a deputy PAIC, and they have SOSs and uh, a full cadre within the table of organization. Also have infrastructure um, on the border itself. Um, when I was, was out there, there was nothing, not even a barbed wire fence. It was just a monument and desert, open desert uh, where we worked. Um, so there's been enormous progress um, across across the, the the border as a as a whole but uh, from last year was the first time I went back to Welton station AOR since I left in 2002 and uh, the changes it's um, very positive um, and significant changes and that's one of the things you can't tell trying to set that up a little bit so you had the same experience at the Grand Marais station and now uh, Welton station before that the border patrol has grown has changed so much in the last two or three decades it's almost unrecognizable compared to what it was. And as a result, our mission is different. The environment that we find ourselves in today is completely different than it was 20 years ago. And so a lot of the things that we've had to do to adapt as an organization, really, if you're, if you're not paying attention, it's easy to overlook. One of the things that you did, you did a headquarters assignment up at uh, Washington, D.C., and, and our headquarters for the U.S. Border Patrol and for Customs and Border Protection is the Reagan Building there on Pennsylvania Avenue, just stones throw away from the, from the White House. and Everybody seems to have to do their time there if, uh, as they promote. But you did something very interesting. You were in this uh, Enforcement and Information Technology Division. First, before we go, tell us a little bit about what that means. What is that division? The Inf- Enforcement and Information Technology Division handled at that time, it's been restructured some, some since then, but uh, it handled all the computer uh, the software, the circuits that uh, uh, the direct liaison with OIT, and um, the all office the Office of Information Technology. Office of Information Technology, yes. And um, I had no background in technology going in. 
Um, so you're talking all the circuits. Um, that's where all the information highway runs through. It's the road for all of that in and out of all of our buildings. And so it was a budget-wise, we, we had a pretty solid budget for technology at that time. We had a lot of facilities that didn't have a lot. Um, our, a lot of our, our, inf our technology was outdated. Um, the handheld radios we use, it was also in charge of all of agents' um, enforcement equipment, other than the, not the use of force uh, issues, but uh, the radios um, and then the cell towers that they bounce off of and then the potential for GPSs and GPS signals. So none of that existed when we came out. Um, and so looking at that across the board, because it had been very piecemeal um, earlier in, in the Border Patrol, and um, getting one division to handle all of that and then... We were also in the process of hiring 6,000 agents uh, around that time frame. And so the amount of money to outfit all of those agents, all of those additional radios, and then we were doing an upgrade and uh, the computer programs and the software, all of that licensing, um, it handled all of that. And a lot of people don't think about the importance of a division like that or even that a law enforcement organization would have one. But when you're talking about an organization that is 20,000 uniformed officers, plus all of the uh, the support personnel, starts to paint a picture for why that's needed. So think about the sheer number of handheld radios. Think about the way that we processed the folks that we arrested back in the day when you and I were out on patrol. And, and folks, I'm talking about a triplicate carbon copy, uh, 213 is the form, where you would fill it out with a pen, or if you were lucky, you had a typewriter that you could roll into it and, and, and type out the information. To where we are today, where everything is databases and SharePoint and it's uh, it's the amount of processing that's required number one is much more substantial than was two decades ago but the tools at our disposal to be able to make that happen is just so much better and it's because of divisions like we have today that the Border Patrol really only in its recent history has come upon 30-40 years ago you wouldn't have found something like that. Right absolutely and when you look at handwritten 213s back in the day and then we went to DOS spreadsheets um, after that and then we went to to different systems each system requires much much more bandwidth and so when as our systems evolved and the information that we collected evolved we're pushing massive volumes of information across these systems the applications the apps of now of now um, and the systems of so software systems of the past um, have grown so much we had stations that still had a copper wire um, just a simple instead of an actual fiber optic circuit like today uh, just a plain copper wire the systems were designed um, and set up and then when they were rolled out big areas san diego being one it's a it's a metropolitan area most of our stations do not exist in metropolitan areas which is another reason why i like border patrol but uh, um, catching all of those places up grand marais um, for example, Presidio, Texas, or Ajo, or uh, areas like that don't didn't didn't have the the complementary business that ran those circuits anyway in the areas, and so we ran into processing problems. It, the system just couldn't handle it. You could process at one computer at a time. You had twenty of them in the station, but if you ran them, it shut the system down because they couldn't push that information. And that's part of a big part of what I was doing with EIT back in those days was getting circuit upgrades. And they are um, crazy expensive to put fiber optic, lay fiber optic into the ground and connect, especially in, uh, in remote locations. And just by virtue of the fact where we do our job, most of the places that we are stationed, 
very, very remote and will have these issues. And we've made leaps and bounds, I think, it's, it's safe to say, over the years. We still have a lot of ground to cover. But when the Border Patrol talks about the need for infrastructure and technology, it's not just one thing. We're not just talking about physical barrier. We're talking about things like this, things that actually enable the agents to be able to get out there and do the job. Number one, to be able to process people that we arrest. But then something, an officer safety issue, like the towers to be able to connect with our handheld radios so we can communicate when we're actually out on patrol. There's plenty of times, I'm sure you had the same, back in the uh, the good old days, so to speak, where you're out there in remote parts of the desert and you may not be able to get out and talk to anybody on your handheld radio because there was nothing out there in the way of infrastructure. Right. Absolutely. And with technology advances of today, too, we're looking at the tax system, the ATAC system, um, rolling out some test areas in San Diego, looking at rolling it out nationwide. And it is a smartphone. And that smartphone has the ability to receive sensor hit data. It has the ability to get game camera pictures immediately on it. Um, it has blue force tracking on it. Um, we're in the process of working on being able to um, run and potentially even enroll people in the field um, through a simple handheld device and the ability to not only run off of cell towers but also off of satellites so that we don't run into in the bottom of a valley somewhere in the middle of nowhere where there's no cell phone coverage, we can still hit a satellite. And officer safety issues, it, uh, it makes a huge difference. And let's talk about that for a second. So when we talk about the, the mobile devices to be able to roll fingerprints or do record checks, also an officer safety issue because that lets you know right off the bat who you're dealing with, who you're talking to, because mixed in amongst the folks that are coming north looking for a better way of life that may enter the country illegally but are otherwise you know, fine people, you have those that are hardened criminals. You have gang members. You have sexual predators. You really can't tell one from the other until you actually do those records checks. And getting that in the hands of the agents, number one, helps us separate the evildoers from the people that, that are not, but also ensures that they're going to be safe out there because they get that information quicker when they need it the most. Right, absolutely. And we use it a lot at the checkpoints. The, the agent at primary knows exactly um where, in many cases, even where that vehicle is coming from before that vehicle even gets to, to primary position. Um, so they have as much as we can give them so that they're ready for whoever it happens to be that's driving that vehicle. And working on, on more and more of that in the field as well for vehicle stops on, in the field, um, for groups um, even in the desert in the remote areas so that we are pushing to develop as much po uh, possible intelligence on what's moving our way um, so that we know um, as far ahead of time as possible to prepare for whatever threat is coming. And from a border security standpoint, as far as our mission, and again, I, I say this every time, Chief Scott likes to say it a lot, we are a border security agency. We are not confined to one particular aspect of that mission. We are not in just immigration. Our job is to make sure that we keep anything bad from coming in this country. We want to make sure that everybody uses the front door whenever they come into our country so that we know who's coming in and, and what their purpose is. And so that's very broad in scope, and we encounter all kinds of people, whether it be narcotic smugglers, whether it be, like I said, criminals or, or folks that are immigrating, fleeing horrible conditions. We do rescues on a, on a daily basis that people don't hear about. But from a border security standpoint, when we have that technology and that information at our disposal, it also helps, uh, helps us to deploy those finite resources in the best way possible to accomplish that mission. We don't have the manpower that we need all up and down the border to cover everything the way that the American people would probably like us to be able to do. So we rely on those force multipliers, and getting that information in our hands helps us make sure that we're in those areas where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. 
Right. Absolutely. And it's our job to make sure we know everything that comes into this country as the the border security agency. I mean, national security is, is, is what we do. And I relay a lot to musters right now. I think this is my fifth or sixth administration. I can't remember. Um, we're, we're an arm of the executive branch. Um, that doesn't change. Our mission itself doesn't change. How we do it changes administration to administration. Um, that's just the fact of life, but it doesn't change what our ultimate mission is, which is to secure the country. Um, it, it just alters the way we do that in ways um, and how we handle things after we determine whoever that 40 people, whoever that 40 people are. We determine who they are, what the threat risk is, um, and then we put them in, as some people like to say, whatever bucket they happen to go into, whether that means they're going to be expelled back to Mexico, whether that means that they're going to be um, prosecuted and put in jail, or whether that means they're going to be um, set up for a court hearing and released. Um, but the ultimate mission hasn't changed and, and doesn't change. We always have a, have that mission, and um, it will always it will always be there. Um, and that part of it doesn't doesn't change. No, great point. And, and kind of talking about so we're we're going through another surge at the at the border, and you know whatever you choose to call it a a challenge or a crisis or what, whatever the word of the day happens to be, it's something that we go through every every few years. The border patrol. This is not the first surge that we've seen. It probably won't be the last. But relying on that technology and that infrastructure to be able to do that job is key. And a lot of people don't think about what it takes to get those things that we need so that we can process the people that we arrest and detain or so that we can get that information to the field where it's going to do the most good. And so that's where a division like the Information in, or Enforcement and Information Technology Division really comes into play and why we would have that up at headquarters. And again, I don't think a lot of people even know exists. All right. Absolutely. And um, it's also coming from the field. And when I went there, we had been straight operations my whole career. And just to I would throw it out there to that sort of detail um, for those interested, but it really opened my eyes to the background, um, the support side of the Border Patrol itself. There is an enormous amount of work that goes into the support side. Um, simple vehicle buy contracts. We just transitioned over to a new sidearm. Um, thousands of hours of work, procurement contracts, testing um, that goes through, and we rely on agents to get that field viewpoint to those contract companies to make sure that it's going to be something that's going to work for us. Um, whether it's a radio, a new cell phone, a new baton, um, anything like that, some things perform better with what we do than others. And because somebody's a procurement officer, they run through the, that paperwork, but we need the field aspect um, delivered as well to make sure it, it meets industry standards, but it also meets our standards for our use in the field. And so we always have Border Patrol agents in that process. And it's a, a very eye-opening process um, when you've been in operations the whole time and you're dealing with budgets and you're crunching numbers and contracting. Um, and within the federal government, there are a lot of rules when it comes to procurement and setting up contracts and uh, um, statements of work and that sort of thing. So it's not just as easy as let's buy this and, and get it out to the field. Right. No, um, there's there's a, a lot to it, and uh, as as you you at headquarters, obviously you know the budgets are tens and hundreds of millions of dollars versus sectors which are much smaller, um, but uh, you're you're dealing with multiple different agencies, multiple different offices, all of CBP, sometimes all of DHS will want to be in on the contracts, and then you're negotiating 
what she, what equipment, what software, what application is the best for all. Um, it saves a lot of money if we can use a single software program. Licensing wise, we can we can purchase it much cheaper if we get one for all of DHS, for example. Now that can have an operational impact as well because <clears throat> we don't have the ability because of all the rules that do exist to you know, be good stewards of the taxpayer's dollar. We can't just buy some things that we might need in an operational environment where things are exigent. That also explains why sometimes we can't just turn on a dime and, and take care of a problem when seemingly the solution might be obvious. Right, correct. And with the putting something out for bids, um, if we have an immediate need, uh, and in some cases you could put out an immediate need if it's a very, very specific thing. There's, uh, there's rules that will allow you to go for a sole source um, purchase or something like that. But in most cases, yes, it has to be bid out because it's it's a, a large sum of money. It has to be competed. Um, different businesses have to have the opportunity to, to have a chance to get the contract, um, which does slow things down considerably. And which is why, too, uh, we're trying to predict as far out as we can with everything we do, um, whether it be operations, but also on the administrative side. The further out we can predict it, as you know, the, the federal budget is, you know, done years years out. And so the more of a heads up we have, the better off we can we can plan for those things. Because the federal budgeting, it doesn't allow you to to have a what if fund that, that doesn't that doesn't fly. And so uh, that. You have to, if you something changes, you have to take money literally from something else and move it over. And so if it, we had a pot of money for a vehicle buy and something else came up, we have to cut vehicles. It just has to come from somewhere. So you may have to decide, do we want vehicles for agents to be able to go out on patrol or do we need another facility that uh, is needed right now because of the circumstances that we're in? Correct. Absolutely. So let's talk about the uh, the surge that's going right now. Being over in, in California, San Diego, you're definitely feeling a, uh, uh, at least a branch of it. You know, there's there's people coming across over in California and in South Texas predominantly and in all points in between, but seems to be experiencing the uh, the biggest brunt of that surge right now. A lot of people don't understand, I think, when we talk about why it's a surge and why it's a challenge for us, it's not just Border Patrol that this is affecting. There's an entire system behind the Border Patrol, which is the front-line operations, the ones that actually do the interdiction. But for everything to work as it should, there's an entire system behind it that is also being overwhelmed. Talk a little bit about that. Right. And the Border Patrol is set up to make an interdiction in the field, find out who that person is, to process them, which basically enter their basic biographic information into the computer, and then turn them over to detention. Um, or wherever they're happening to happen to to go, whether they're going to be expelled, voluntarily returned to to uh, their country of origin, or or held, prosecuted, we're set up to handle those folks for a couple of hours. That's really bottom line. How our all of our facilities are set up? They're not set up to hold anybody even overnight for the most part. Make the interdiction, find out who they are, and they're gone. And the reason for that is because. That's not our mission. Our mission is not to detain folks for extended periods of time. Our mission is to be out there and actually doing the arrest. So they're not configured that way for a purpose. Correct. Correct. And and our, our systems are also set up for, you know, 20 plus years ago where we saw virtually all adult male. When, of those that we arrested were virtually all adult males. And for the most part, they were prosecuted. They were voluntarily returned to their country. Um, and they were able to be brought in and sent out very quickly. Um we had, and 
and this is I'm talking INS days, um, uh, Immigration Naturalization Service. So it's a it's a number of years ago. We had deportations officers at that time, um, part of the Border Patrol, and they handled that transport. They transported them to detention. They transported them back to the the Mexican border um, for the voluntary returns. Um, with the merger in CBP that was changed over to ICE, um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They um, have never had enough bed space, enough detention space to, to fill, um, to be able to handle the volume. The volume has obviously increased over the years. And as that goes up, the number of prosecutions goes up, the immigration courts run out of space. Um, there has to be enough immigration judges um, to sit and hear these cases. Um, the attorneys all have to have, we have to have enough prosecuting attorneys within our system to handle the prosecution side, the defense side, um, and it overwhelms the entire system and then the entire system backs up. When it, the, at the backup point, the unfortunate part for the Border Patrol is the point where we can't just not make an arrest. We make an arrest because they're there. Everything else is backed up from us on there's no place to put them anymore and so within the system um if and then covid of course um knocked our detention uh, uh within cbp and, and dhs's detention um down to about 25 percent of of normal which it couldn't keep up before covid now it's reduced by 75 percent there's just no place to house those folks so if we can kind of find an analogy for it I, for me it's if you have a, uh, a kitchen sink and you have the water running, that sink is only built to handle so much water. If the plumbing is clogged up in some form or fashion or, or can't drain the water fast enough, that sink is inevitably going to overflow. And that's essentially what we've got going on here with this entire system. It's Nobody's unwilling or it's not uh, necessarily their fault. It's just that the events and the circumstances of the environment are overwhelming what the capacity is all up and down the line. Unfortunately, the Border Patrol are the first ones to encounter these individuals and, and have them in our custody. And so we cannot stop making the arrests, as you said, but if everybody behind us cannot handle that flow fast enough, it causes a backlog additional people being held by us because they're waiting their turn to go into that process. Right. Absolutely. And we're working on every option we can um, to, uh, to minimize that. Um, a good example right now of a very difficult situation is unaccompanied children. Unaccompanied children are, are not adults under the age of 18. They come up without a family member that we can release them with. Whether they're 10 years old, 12 years old, um, they cannot be released out onto the street. They're not old enough to take care of themselves. We can't return them back if they're a, a national of Mexico. We can't return them back to Mexico by themselves. Um, we need to find a family member. Um, generally, and as, as uh, by policy, we turn them over to Health and Human Services, HHS. Right now, right now, they're running out of space, and so they are filling up. And because of that population being a vulnerable population, we can't just release them somewhere. So what do you do? So we have to house them in our facilities. Um, and that's creating, it creates issues where we're not um, by, uh, by law to keep them over um, 72 hours. And um, we, we do, we have to. But um, the question literally is what else can you do? Correct, correct. And right now um, I know we're working at, with, at every possible way that we can find to, uh, to find a, a, a solution to this. But 
you know, like I said, uh, they're 10, they're 12 years old. Um, we can't just put them somewhere. They're not old enough to, to be able to be released. And so. it's important to remember, so ICE, ERO, and HHS, they're good partners. They're, they're, right. They want to help us. They want to do their part as well. It's a capacity issue. Correct. Correct. They're, they're out of beds and rooms. Um, they're full. And the same is true when you start talking about further down the line, when somebody gets their immigration hearing. There's only so many immigration judges. There's only so many uh, court docket spaces. There's only so many uh, immigration attorneys that, that, uh, that can represent the government. There's, uh, there's very limited numbers out there to be able to handle once they get past the detention aspect. So all up and down the system, it's been overwhelmed by the surge. For whatever the reason that the surge occurs, it's kind of irrelevant. The fact is we can only handle so much in the way that we are configured up and down the system. Right, absolutely. And, um, and then, you know, just the, the COVID um, slows everything down all the way across. All the way across, and you know, um, um, ICE has been a, a great partner as well as HHS and uh, as well as the government of Mexico. Um, they've been uh, uh, great partners with us uh, out in the, in the San Diego and Tijuana area in the Baja, um, and uh, they they work you know as hard as they can uh, in their areas to help us out as well. Um, it affects Tijuana. Um, it affects uh, the the town south of Tijuana where large groups are coming through. Their towns are in a COVID environment, staging or camping um, out in large numbers, um, not sanitary necessarily. Um, so it causes it causes them problems too. They want a solution uh, uh, just like we do. I think we all do, and especially when it comes to the children, uh, unaccompanied children. You have somebody, you know, 10 years old, a 10-year-old child. You can't, as you said, just let them walk out the door. You can't just ship them back to, uh, to Mexico by themselves. It, they need to be with somebody who's going to take care of them. They need to be with a family member. They need to be with HHS who's going to find a place for them to wait until that can happen. If you can't, if all of those options have been exhausted, you have no choice but to keep them there for their own safety. Right. And in facilities, unfortunately, they're not equipped for long-term stays. They're not equipped for diverse populations of folks. As you said before, predominantly what we have encountered in years past has been single adult males, mostly from Mexico, that started to change over the past couple of decades, I would say, you know, to a large degree. So then it becomes kind of a hopeless feeling, and that's where you start seeing the Border Patrol agents uh, encounter morale issues because they're there literally changing diapers, mixing formula, taking the kids out to, to play where they can, and trying to make the best of a terrible situation. I don't know that a lot of people in the public know the why. Why did it come to this, and why is it being done? the way that it's being done. I think it's important to understand that it's the system all up and down that is overwhelmed, but the Border Patrol being that front line is the most visible aspect of it because we're the ones that can't say no. Correct, absolutely. And just the effort um, that the agents take upon themselves every day. Um, you have agents coming in after hours to, to bring in toys, to bring in extra food, um, to uh, spend time. With, uh, with kids and, and families. Our facilities, it's a law enforcement facility. It's, um, they're clean and they have everything they need, but it's um, not uh, a place where a 10-year-old is gonna be particularly happy. Um, it's a, a drab government building. Um, and and so it, and of course, they're, without a family member, they're going to be anxious as well, just like any child would be, um, taking them out of their, their comfort zone and putting them into a foreign, foreign country where at least for the most part, uh, most of the, the children we see speak Spanish. 
Um, and so, and we all speak Spanish. And so the conversation um, is fine. We can communicate with them and that sort of thing, but they're still in a foreign country. And that's another issue too. If you send them out on the door, on the, on the street too, many of them don't speak English, um, which is another thing um, uh, that has to be considered. So, uh, but the, the effort and the, the, emotion that uh, comes from the agents to, to do everything they can to make them as comfortable as they can. And I think is an important thing for the public to realize that uh, um, they're not locked up in, you know, in a room somewhere. They're not, um, I mean, obviously, no, they're not going to be having fun, but uh, the agents do everything they possibly can to make them as comfortable as they can to make their stay as short as possible and as comfortable as possible. You hit on another important aspect, I think, earlier on where we talked about what the mission is, and it doesn't matter what time frame we're in. It doesn't matter what administration is currently in power. Our mission is always there, and it uh, you know we're a federal organization. We're apolitical in every way. Our job is always going to be there, and we have seen these types of surges throughout uh, throughout history. Border Patrol for almost a hundred years has been dealing with one crisis or one emergency or, or one challenge or the other uh, throughout our, our history. When you and I came in, I know over in, uh, in California, Yuma, it was very, very busy. It was a much different uh, time frame, and the way that we dealt with the traffic that we came across was, was much different. It was much more of a turnstile operation. The processing was much more much more minimal. Uh, we didn't deal with a lot of the uh, prosecution aspects. So in that way, we've gotten much better. But we have seen surges like this throughout our history. So to, this is nothing new. But it's certainly something that we would like to see rectified at some point because we don't like seeing people put into these types of situations, and we don't like having our ability to enforce that border security mission be compromised in any way. Correct, correct. And and you look at San Diego as a good example. Um, we go back to the, the Clinton administration uh, in the 90s where the actual original border fence was put up, uh, the landing mat fence. At the time, there was virtually no infrastructure out there. In most places, there was no infrastructure. And there were a lot of drive-throughs, vehicle drive-throughs. And they started causing traffic accidents uh, throughout Southern California and San Diego, um, injuries and deaths. Uh, that fencing was not, it's eight foot high, um, old landing mat fencing, which is a, basically an iron, iron sheet that was used uh, in the Vietnam War to, to, to land helicopters on. Um, mostly put up by Border Patrol agents and, and uh, National Guard. And it was to slow the traffic down. Um, they had a, they had a significant surge at that time, um, and uh, and it goes across administrations. It goes across the the decades and decades. Um, Chief Scott gives a good example too about the changes. Is uh, many of the border patrol agents we lost in the line of duty go back to prohibition. Um, a lot of them on the northern border and the, on the southern border as well um, was a, a, an influx of armed smugglers who were bringing. Um, alcohol back into the United States during Prohibition. Um, prohibition's gone, and we, we, we drink alcohol now. Um, you know, m- many, many of the uh, Americans do, I'm sure. No sense getting mad about it. And it was a change in policy, and, and we move on. The Border Patrol's mission didn't change. Um, it was enforced. The federal law is the norm of the executive branch. Alcohol was illegal. We enforced it. As we've moved on through the decades, it's not illegal anymore. We don't enforce that, but our our mission is still there. And always will be. Yes. 
Now, speaking of the armed smugglers, going back to the Prohibition days, we're, we talk about the ones that are responsible for the flow of illicit traffic, whether it be people or goods coming across our borders. And that's an aspect of our mission as a, a federal organization that is in the border security business. We don't just address the flow. It's much more complex and in-depth than that. One of the jobs that you did, in addition to everything else I've listed out here, was you were the uh, associate chief over the Alliance to Combat Transnational Threats for the Arizona Corridor. That's a mouthful. But long story short, we have a targeted enforcement effort in our enforcement posture that goes after the smugglers and the organizations that are responsible for that flow. In other words, you don't just see Border Patrol agents out on patrol in the green and white vehicles and and interdicting uh, things that come across. That is a big part of what we do. That's the conventional side. But also, we have an ongoing and persistent targeted enforcement operation where we work in partnership with our investigative partners. Talk a little bit about that. Right. And the idea is to hit the organization across its entire breadth um, and even to focus as much as we can on the leadership of the organization. So if you're looking at a cartel that mainly operates out of whether it be Mexico or Venezuela or up here in the United States, we have the Homeland Security Investigations, which within DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, is our um, investigative branch, the, the, the 1811 um, investigators. Um, we work also with the, the Department of uh, uh, the Dr- DEA and uh, the FBI, um, as well as the marshals and state and locals, so that we can gather as much information um, as we can on the, the whole organization. Who is in charge? Where do they run their illicit contraband? What is their illicit contraband? Where does it come from? Um, all the way down to the mules that, uh, that actually move the contraband itself so that we can attack it as a business. It's a business is what the cartel is. That's all uh, there to make money. They're moving a commodity, whether that's human, human commodity, narcotics or other things, guns. Um, and then we, we hit the cash flow as well. Um, as much as we can find out where the money is moving. Um, large amounts of money are moving back and forth, um, and we can find out where those that aspect is. When you shut the money off, the business stops making money, the, they'll find a new business to try to make money. Absolutely. It's just how economics work. And so with all of our partners, we can target. Um, there, there are multiple um, illegal organizations out there. If we can find a large one that is having a significant effect, say maybe they're adding to the surge at the border, um, we can start working in that organization from all angles um, and shut them down. And we work with foreign governments as well um, where those that organization is operating to shut them down there too. Um, we have multiple cases going on, going all the way down into South America and over into Europe um, where uh, uh, contraband's being being uh, sent and uh, the proceeds are being sent. Now you hit on a good point right now. If we talk about how these uh, cartels or these networks will actually use a surge to their advantage. And I think a lot of people may not think about that as well because you have, they see the surge or they, they contribute to it to basically drain our resources away from being able to do the border security mission so that it makes life easier on them to be able to conduct their enterprise in other places. Correct, absolutely. And what we see a lot is sending up a group of 50 or 100 or 500, um, and they come up and they give up, and we have to send a large number of people down there to handle that. Our agents have no choice. They have, right. to, they have to address those people that uh, they come across. Correct, and so they go down and pick them up. And they'll charge and they'll have ag- agreements. They'll, they'll know that uh, if they're going to come in, they're going to um, 
go through the paperwork. If they do end up back in Mexico, uh, the, the cartels of business, it'll say, all right, well, um, we kind of thought that would happen. We'll give you another try for free. Um, but they'll, they'll send them up, fill our resources up completely. And then behind them, once basically most of our forces are off the field handling that 500 they just gave up, they'll run the narcotics through or they'll run the, uh, the criminal aliens through that they can charge more money for that they know are going to jail if they get caught. So they want to work harder for them to get away. Um, and so they'll, they'll fill up our resources. Um, and they'll also, they'll bait, um, us and by, by baiting, I say, um, we've had them use small children, um, put small children out by themselves to the point where we, we had, uh, last year, the year before somebody lowered, uh, uh, a toddler into the razor wire at the bottom of the, of the wall. Um, obviously you're not going to just let the child cut themselves. We go over there to handle that, and they'll run something else on on the side. So they're they're very unscrupulous, um, and uh, it's all about money. It's not about necessarily health and and safety. They don't care who lives or dies. They don't care about the people that they're smuggling, and they don't care the circumstances that these folks are fleeing. They just want to make the money by any way possible. Right. And we've seen examples of that through the years. I my time back in Laredo, when we actually had several folks that uh, were killed by a smuggler in the back of a. Uh, tractor trader because they were left there in the heat in a, in a Walmart parking lot. The stash houses that we see them uh, kept in, which amount to nothing more for the cartels than, than warehouses. They just they stick them in these run-down shacks with no running water, very little food, uh, very little uh, in the way of bathroom facilities or, or hygiene of any sort. And they're left there for days, if not weeks, before they move to the next point. And again, they don't care if these people live or die or what they're going to do. Right, absolutely, absolutely, and we're seeing it in the maritime environment now too. Uh, boats uh, are full of people that uh, that don't necessarily aren't necessarily seaworthy, don't necessarily have enough gas, don't have uh, communications. If they're getting trouble out there, um, you know, there's we don't necessarily know they're there. There's nobody out there, and uh, so yeah, likely they they'll likely drown if somebody doesn't find out that they're out there. So again, one of the second, third order effects of this surge that we're seeing or surges like these that, that, that we're seeing right now is it takes our eye off the price. It takes us away from that border security mission that really is focused on keeping those bad people and bad things from coming to the country and targeting those smugglers that are responsible for the narcotics smuggling, that are responsible for bringing in criminals and sexual predators and the like. That's really one of the main missions that we're out there for. We can't do that and deal with the surge we simply have to deal with this. Our manpower is, is taken up. Our resources are taken up by this search so that we can't focus on that aspect of it. I don't know that a lot of people see that for what it is. But at the end of the day, this this is a border security organization, a law enforcement organization, and we're not always able to do that to, to maximum effect when we have these surges going on. Right, absolutely. It's a, it's a matter of resources. Everything is limited. Um, as we know, uh, everything has, has, a, has an end point. And we have... X amount of resources, and we want to put them towards the most significant threat. Um, getting to that, that what is that most significant threat is the hard part. It is, and, and it kind of takes the decision out of our hands whenever you have the humanitarian issues. We have to deal with that. It's right, right. there in front of us. We have no choice. The bad guys know that, and they take advantage of it. Absolutely. And they also take advantage to mix in people that, uh, that are not undergoing this humanitarian crisis that are not fleeing terrible conditions. They're trying to take advantage of the large amounts, large volumes of people to, to blend in. Right, right. Anyway, they can, anything they can do to make 
it easier for them to get their their real commodities through the ones that are the highest cost, the highest uh, highest uh, um, income for them. Um, that's where they're going to focus. So we see the cartels and the uh, transnational criminal organizations as our primary adversaries, and what uh, the way we used to describe it is. Our mission going after them was to, number one, disrupt their capabilities, degrade their capabilities, and then ultimately dismantle the organization so that it could not function. It would be nice if we could focus in large part on that. It would be nice if HSI and the other investigative agencies could focus exclusively on that. But there's so many other things going on to include COVID and to include this, uh, this, this surge that we're currently seeing right now. That's where I think the American people need to pay attention to this is where it's impacting you at home. This is where it's impacting your loved ones because it makes the country a little less safe when we're not able to be out there doing that border security mission. All right, absolutely. And it comes down to, um, you know, post 9-11 um, is really when we really changed our focus to be national security and um in the terrorism aspect um it, it's still it's still out there it's still has been out there for 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 way before 9-11 but uh it's still ultimately protecting this country and the better off we are to focus our resources on those most serious threats the better off we are um anything that distracts us, um, pulls our resources away from that, allows that little bit more of an opportunity for something to get past us that is one of those very serious threats. And I think at the end of the day, that's why a lot of us get into this this field, this law enforcement field. We're public servants. We want to serve a, a higher calling and, and help uh, protect our country and, and, and the people in it that we love so much. You've been in for 23 years now doing uh, Border Patrol work, and you gave up uh, practicing law to, uh, to do it. Talk about one of the most gratifying experiences you've had. What's been something that you look back on and you feel like, okay, I made a difference here. Being in this uniform, uh, it, it made it all worthwhile. I've had uh, probably the very first one um, was a, a group of, uh, of folks that uh, I arrested down in, in Welton. And um, uh, it was one of the few family groups we, we actually came across out in the desert. Now, we would see them in the vehicles, but not in the desert so much. As in places out there, it's a 60-mile walk uh, across sand before you have pavement in Mexico to pavement in the United States. So it's it's a very difficult trek. Um, and uh, we, I processed them. I talked to them, and I uh, didn't think that much of it. And uh, a few weeks later, uh, the station received a uh, thank you letter um, from the one of the mothers that was in the group. Um, and she wrote it specifically to me. Um, and it was it was it was nice, um, rewarding. You know, a, a, a true um, a, a true sense of gratification um, for having she, she. You know, she was happy that, that they were treated like people. That they were that they didn't have a hard time. Um, that I was nice to them. Um, but it, that was very nice to see that uh, that it had an effect. And she actually took the time to write the letter. Um, you know, it wasn't just a. Um, running around in a green uniform, grabbing her and throwing her back, uh, you know, in the back of the truck. Um, See, I think that says a lot. So of all the things that you've done, all the narcotics that you've seized, all the bad guys that you've taken off the street, one of the most gratifying things that comes to memory for you is a thank you letter that you got from the family member of folks that you arrested because you essentially were nice to them because you you did your job well. Right. And and there's been, you know, there's been uh, the rescues. Um 
um, also obviously very, very gratifying and, and, and things like that. I don't, uh, uh, the prosecutions and the narcotics loads and stuff, it's, it's part of business, but, uh, um, it's not to me nearly as gratifying as, as the ability to save a life, as the ability to offer a group like that family. Um, you know, it's not, we're not, uh, we're not the bad guys. Um, we're not going to be mean to them. We're not going to, they're human beings and, you know, um, we treat them with as much respect as we can. Um, and that's a great uh, segue because I think there's always going to be a narrative that is driven by an agenda about who we are and what this organization is about the men and women that wear this uniform. And it's always been my goal. I want people to see them through my eyes, to see what they do, the selfless acts each and every day, the rescues that you talked about, the countless number of times they put their lives on the line for complete strangers. They run toward the danger instead of away from it like most people would do. That's the organization and the family that I'm a part of and that I'm most proud of. If you could afford for a minute for the, uh, the American people or the people that we serve to see the Border Patrol through your eyes, what should they see? What should they see in the men and women that wear this uniform every day? The amount of dedication to protecting this country, but also protecting every single life that they come in contact with. Um, my best example is last year we had a group of four um, into the mountains, in Otay Mountains. It was snowing that night. They were in jeans and T-shirts. Um, we had a... Uh, Cell phone come in uh, for 911 call and weren't able to, to uh, track it. The battery had gone dead. Uh, our Borstar team went in um, at night. It couldn't, because of the weather, the helicopters couldn't fly. They hiked in. They found the group of four. They had their equipment. Um, there was five of them. They had their equipment. They couldn't get Hilo in. They could not, two of the, uh, of the group, two of the, the females were already unconscious uh, from hypothermia. They wrapped them up in sleeping bags and laid with them all night to try to keep them warm. Um, all of them, when we got them out the next morning, all of the agents were suffering from hypothermia. Um, all of them had frostbite. Um, unfortunately, both of the, the young women passed away, um, but they spent 12 hours all night with them, um, wrapped up, trying to keep them warm, trying to keep them alive, and uh, you know did everything they possibly could um, to the extent of risking their own lives and their own health. Um, and that was, that was a group of four, it was, but it was four people. Um, it's not for, they don't see for apprehensions. They don't see for illegal aliens. They're people. Um, and they went, you know, so far above and beyond. But that happens every day. It's not, um, it's not like that happens once a year. Um, this happens every day, whether it's dehydration, whether, um, and then just the, the respect and the professionalism that they treat people with. Um, that is the, you know, the Border Patrol that, that I see and, and that I truly believe is, is the Border Patrol. Um, it's not uh, um, just the way I see it. it is, to me, it is the way it is. Um, and I, I, yes, very much want um, people to see that. And I tell that story uh, along with several others every chance I get um, because uh, um, I had you know, another story. Um, it was in the, in the beach. We had a, a, a boat dump the aliens off about 100 yards offshore. Um, the folks were dumped off. Um, the boat left. Um, there were 10, 12-foot breakers that night. Uh, it's the middle of the night. Um, agents were on the beach with no equipment to get into the water. 
people are screaming, um, drowning. Um, we had several drowned that evening, um, but they were the agents were going out as best they could and pulling people in as fast as they could to try to save as many lives as they could. Um, and that happens every day. And these are things that don't make the news. Correct. These right. are things that most uh, American people will never hear about until we see it. They'll hear the, uh, the the bad news stories, I guess, because that may get uh, more ratings or whatnot. But these are this is real life. This is what the men and women that wear this uniform go out and do each and every day. And it's why so many of us are, are proud to be a part of it. And it's why so many of us found a home here where uh, we make this our career. We make this our family, no matter where we come from. Right. Absolutely. And, and the, the dedication is, is, is just amazing. Um, I am more and more proud every day um, to be a member of the Border Patrol and just of all the, the, the other members of the Border Patrol. So you just got to talk to Class 1152 who graduated. They're our newest men and women to join the ranks out there in the, in the field, and some of them are going to your sector, right. going to, to California. What message do you want to give to the folks that are up and coming that are either going through the process right now or thinking about joining the Border Patrol, the men and women that are out there in the field right now, as to what they're going through? Words of encouragement, advice, what can you give them? The biggest thing is that our mission hasn't changed. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, we can still have a lot of fun out there. There's still a lot of lives to save. Uh, there's still a lot of criminals to catch. Regardless of any of the, the changes in policies or, or laws, um, and as it's continuous. This isn't the first time this has ever happened. It's not the last time this is going to happen. We still have a very significant mission to accomplish. We still have all the tools we need to accomplish it. So there's no, there should be no sense of, of <coughs> no sense of, of things getting worse um, or it being more difficult or it not being like it used to be. There is no like it used to be. Um, it, it, things change point. all the time. Always have. Now with technology and some things change a little quicker nowadays than they did 20, 30, 50 years ago. Um, but it's constant change, and it's still a fantastic career. It's still a very, very significant mission to accomplish, and it's still very necessary to accomplish. Um, and like I, I said a minute ago, we still have all the tools we need to do it. And, and so support for them. I have you know, nothing but respect um, for all of the, the agents out there, all of law enforcement out there, and uh, uh, supporting them. Um, that's, you know, that's what we do as chiefs. Uh, we don't run around in the field anymore, but we support. Our job is to support them, to give them everything they need, whether it be the equipment or whether it be the, uh, the messaging um, to the public about what they actually do. Um, things get, look at it as things getting better. Don't look at it as things getting worse. Um, we change, and with change, we adapt to it, and um, we find ways to, to make it a positive, not a negative. Great words, great stories. Chief Patrol Agent Aaron Heike from the San Diego Sector. Chief, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And that's going to do it again with another episode of What's Important Now. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk again soon. Till then, you guys stay safe out there and honor first.